Book Whisper Halloween special. We are upon the second night on the week of Halloween as we continue the story of Dracula. We last left off deep in the Carpathian Mountains of Romania. Dracula has left the building boxed up in a large pile of cargo heading straight for London, leaving behind poor Jonathan Harker, left for dead, trapped prisoner, alone in Dracula's castle with three blood-sucking women and he's not having a good time. So make yourself a cocktail. Put your feet up on the 11th century settee inherited from your royal ancestors, and let's keep going. Sterna. 
So 
as many as one. 
the patients I picked 
seemed to get nearer than ever before to the heart of his mystery. I questioned him more fully than I had ever done, with a view to making myself master of the facts of his hallucination. In my manner of doing it there was, I now see, something of cruelty. I seemed to wish to keep him to the point of his madness, a thing which I avoid with the patience as I would the mouth of hell. Ma'am, under what circumstances would I not avoid the bit of hell? Omnia Roma venalia sunt. Hell has its price. Verb sub. If there be anything behind this instinct, it will be valuable to trace it afterwards accurately, so I'd better commence to do so. Therefore, R. M. Renfield, Eta 59. Sanguine temperament, great physical strength, morbidly excitable, periods of gloom, enduring in some fixed idea, which I cannot make out. I presume that the sanguine temperament itself and the disturbing influence end in a mentally accomplished finish, a possibly dangerous man, probably dangerous if unselfish. In selfish men, caution is as secure an armor for their foes as for themselves. What I think of on this point is, oneself is the fixed point. The centripetal force is balanced with the centrifugal. When duty a cause, etc. is the fixed point, the latter force is paramount, and only accident or a series of accidents can balance it. C.P. Morris to Honorable Arthur Holmwood. My dear Art, we've told yarns by the campfire in the prairies and dressed one another's wounds after trying a landing at the Marquesas.
pictures we see of Nuremberg. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes, and which is the scene of part of Marmion, where the girl was built up in the wall. It is a most noble ruin of immense size and full of beautiful and romantic bits. There is a legend that a white lady is seen in one of the windows. Between it and the town there is another church, the parish one, round which is a big graveyard, all full of tombstones. This is to my mind the nicest spot in Whitby, for it lies right over the town, and has a full view of the harbour, and all up the bay to where the headland called Kettleness stretches out into the sea. It descends so steeply over the harbour that part of the bank has fallen away, and some of the graves have been destroyed. In one place, part of the stonework of the graves stretches out over the sandy pathway far below. There are walks with seats beside them. Through the churchyard, and people go and sit there all day long, looking at the beautiful view and enjoying the breeze. I shall come and sit here very often myself and work. Indeed, I am writing now, with my book on my knee, and listening to the talk of three old men who are sitting beside me. They seem to do nothing all day but sit up here and talk. The harbor lies below me, with, on the far side, one long granite wall stretching out into the sea, with a curve outwards at the end of it in the middle of which is a lighthouse. A heavy sea wall runs alongside of it. On the near side, the sea wall makes an elbow crooked inversely, and its end, too, has a lighthouse. Between the two piers there is a narrow opening into the harbor, which then suddenly widens. It is nice at high tide, but when the tide is out, it shoals away to nothing there is merely the stream of the Esk, running between banks of sand, with rocks here and there. Outside the harbor on this side, there rises for about half a mile a great reef, the sharp edge of which runs straight out from behind the south lighthouse. At the end of it is a buoy with a bell, which swings in bad weather, and sends in a mournful sound on the wind. They have a legend here, when a ship is lost. Bells are heard out at sea. I must ask the old man about this. He is coming this way. He is a funny old man. He must be awfully old, for his face is all gnarled and twisted like the bark of a tree. He tells me that he is nearly a hundred, and that he has and that he was a sailor in the Greenland fishing fleet when Waterloo was fought. He is, I am afraid, very skeptical person, for when I asked him about the bells at sea and the white lady at the abbey, he said very brusquely, I wouldn't fash massel about them, miss. Them things be all wore out. Mind, I don't say that they never was, but I do say that they wasn't in my time. They be all very well for comers and trippers and the like but not for a nice young lady like you. Them feet folks from York and Leeds, 
himself to begin when the clock struck six, whereupon he labored to get up, and said, I must gang a G in words home now, miss. My granddaughter doesn't like to be kept waiting when the tea is ready, for it takes me time to cram up on the, the grease, for there be a many of them and miss. I lack belly timber, sarely by the clock. He hobbled away, and I could see him hurrying, as well as he could, down the steps. The steps are a great feature of the place. They lead from the town up to the church. There are hundreds of them. I do not know how many, and they wind up in a delicate curve. The slope is so gentle that a horse could easily walk up and down them. I think they must originally have had something to do with the abbey. I shall go home, too. Lucy went out visiting with her mother, and as they were only duty calls, I did not go. They will be home by this. First of August. I came up here an hour ago with Lucy, and we had a most interesting talk with my old friend and the two others who always come and join them. He is evidently the Sir Oracle of them, and I should think must have been in his time a most dictatorial person. He will not admit anything, and down faces everybody. If he can't out-argue them, he bullies them, and then takes their silence for agreement with his views. Lucy was looking sweetly pretty in her white lawn frock. She has got a beautiful color since she has been here. I noticed that the old man did not lose any time in coming up and sitting near her when we sat down. She is so sweet with old people. I think they all fell in love with her on the spot. Even my old man succumbed and did not contradict her, but gave me double share instead. I got him on the subject of the legends, and he went off at once into a sort of sermon. I must try to remember it and put it down. It be all fool talk, lock, stock, and barrel. That's what it be, and nothing else. These bands and wafts and old pole ghosts and bargasts and bogles and all anent them is only fit to set barns and dizzy woman a belder in. They be not but air blips. They and all grims and signs and warnings be all invented by parsons and illsome boot bodies and railway touters to skeer and scunner offlands and to get folks to do something that they don't and other inclined to. It makes me earful to think of them. Why, it's them that, not content with printing lies on paper and preaching them out of pulpits, does want to be cutting them on the tombstones. Look here all around you and what art you will. All them steens holding up their heads as well as they can out of their pride is a cant. Simply tumbling down with the weight of the lies wrote on them. Here lies the body, or sacred to the memory, wrote on all of them, and yet in nigh half of them there paint nobodies at all, and the memories of them been cared a pinch of snuff about, much less scared. Lies of all of them, nothing but lies of one kind or another. My cock but it'll be a choir scouterment at the day of judgment 
from the old fellow's self-satisfied air and the way in which he looked round for the approval of his cronies that he was showing off. So I put in a word to keep him going. Oh, Mr. Swales, you can't be serious. Surely these tombstones are not all wrong. Yablins, there may be a poorish few not wrong, save in where they make out the people too good. For there be folk that do think a palm bowl be like the sea, if only it be their own. The whole thing be only lies. Now look you here, you come here, stranger, and you see this Kirk Garth. I nodded, for I thought it better to assent, though I did not quite understand his dialect. I knew it had something to do with the church. He went on. And you can say that all steens, stens be a boon folk that be hap dear, snog and snog. I assented again. Then that be just where the lie comes in. Why, there be scores of these lay beds that be doom as old Don's box on Friday night. He nudged one of his companions, and they all laughed. And my cog, how could they be otherwise? Look at that one. The aftest above the beer bank. Read it. I went over and read. Edward Spenslaw, Master Mariner, Murdered by Pirates. Off the Coast of Andres, April 1854, age 30. When I came back, Mr. Swales went on. Who brought him home, I wonder, to have him here? of Andres, and you consated his body, lay under. Why, I could name ye a dozen whose bones lie in the Greenland seas above, he pointed northwards, or where the currents may have drifted them. There be the steens round ye. Ye can, with your young eyes, read the small print of the lies from here. This Braithwaite Lowray, I knew his father, lost in the lively off Greenland in 20, or Andrew Woodhouse drowned in the same seas in 1777, or John Paxton drowned off Cape Farewell a year later, or old John Rawlings, whose grandfather sailed with me, drowned in the Gulf of Finland in 50. Do you think that all these men will have made a rush to Whitby when the trumpet sounds? I have me and theorems about it. I tell you that when they got here, they be jumbling and jostling one other, one another that way that it would be like a fight up on the ice in the old days, when we'd be at one another from daylight to dark, and trying to tie up our guts by the light of the aurora borealis. This was evidently local pleasantry, for the old man cackled over it, and his cronies joined in with gusto. But, I said, Surely you are not quite correct, for you start on the assumption that all the poor people, or their spirits, will have to take their tombstones with them on the day of judgment. Do you think that will be really necessary? Well, what else they beat tombstones for? Answer me that, miss. To please their relatives, I suppose. To please their relatives, you suppose. This he said with intense scorn. How will it pleasure their relatives to know that
George Cannon, who died in the hope of a glorious resurrection on July 29, 1873, falling from the rocks at Kettleness. This tomb is erected by his sorrowing mother to her dearly beloved son. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Really, Mr. Swales, I don't see anything very funny in that. She spoke her comment very gravely and somewhat severely. You don't see odd funny. <laughs> but that's because you don't con. The sorrowing mother was a hellcat that hated him because he was a crooked, regular lameter he was, and he hated her so that he committed suicide in order that she mightn't get an insurance she put on his life. She blew nigh the top of his head off with an old musket that they had for scaring the crows with. Torn for crows then, for it brought the clicks and the tops to him. That's the way he fell off the rocks. And, as to hopes of a glorious resurrection, I've often heard him say, Maisel, that he hoped he'd go to hell, for his mother was so pious that she'd be sure to go to heaven, and he didn't want to addle where she was. Now, isn't that Steen any rate? He hammered it with his stick as he spoke. A pack of lies. And won't it make Gabriel cackle when Geordie comes panting up the grease with the tombstone balanced on his hump and asked it to be took as evidence? I did not know what to say, but Lucy turned the conversation as she said, rising up. Oh, why did you tell us all of this? It is my favorite seat, and I cannot leave it. And now I find I must go on sitting over the grave of a suicide. That won't harm ye, my pretty, and it may make poor Geordie gladsome to have so trim a lass sitting on his lap. That won't hurt you. Why, I've sat here off and on for nigh twenty years past, and it hasn't done me no harm. Don't ye fash about them as lies under ye, or that doesn't lie ye there either. It'll be time for ye to be getting scart when ye see the doomstons all run away with the place as bare as a stubble field. There's the clock, and I must gang my service to ye ladies. And off he hobbled. Lucy and I sat a while, and it was all so beautiful before us that we took hands as we sat, and she told me all over again about Arthur and their coming marriage. That made me just a little heartsick, for I haven't heard from Jonathan for all month. The same day, I came up here alone, for I am very sad. There was no letter for me. I hope there cannot be anything the matter with Jonathan. The clock has just struck nine. I see the lights scattered all over the town, sometimes in rows where the streets are, and sometimes singly. They run eight up the esk and die away in the curve of the alley. To my left, the view is cut off by a black line of roof of the old house next the abbey. The sheep and lambs are bleeding in the fields, away behind me, and there is a clatter of a donkey's hoofs up the paved road below. The band on the pier is playing a harsh waltz in good time, and further along the quay, there is a Salvation Army meeting in a back street. Neither of the bands hears the other, but up here... I hear and see them both. I wonder where Jonathan is, and if he's 
sort of rapture in his voice and bearing. A kitten. A nice little, sleek, playful kitten that I can play with and teach and feed and feed and feed. I was not unprepared for this request, for I had noticed how his pets went on increasing in size and vivacity. But I did not care that his pretty family of tame sparrows should be wiped out in the same manner as the flies and the spiders. So I said I would see about it, and asked him if he would not rather have a cat than a kitten. His eagerness betrayed him as he answered, Oh yes, I would like a cat. I only asked for a kitten, lest you should refuse me a cat. No one would refuse me a kitten, would they? I shook my head and said that at present I feared it would not be possible, but that I would see about it. His face fell, and I could see a warning of danger in it, for there was a sudden fierce, sidelong look, which meant killing. The man is an undeveloped homicidal maniac. I shall test him with his present craving and see how it will work out. Then I shall know more. 10 p.m. I have visited him again found him, sitting in a corner brooding. When I came in, he threw himself on his knees before me, and implored me to let him have a cat, that his salvation depended on it. I was firm, however, and told him that he could not have it, whereupon he went without a word, and sat down, gnawing his fingers, in the corner where I had found him. I shall see him in the morning early." 20th of July. Visited Renfield very early. Before the attendant went his rounds, found him up and humming a tune. He was spreading out his sugar, which he had saved in the window, and was manifestly beginning his fly-catching again, and beginning it cheerfully and with a good grace. I looked around for his birds, and not seeing them, I asked him where they were. He replied, without turning around, that they had all flown away. There were a few feathers about the room, and on his pillow a drop of blood. I said nothing, but went and told the keeper to report to me if there were anything odd about him during the day. 11 a.m. The attendant has just been to me to say that Renfield has been very sick and has disgorged a whole lot of feathers. My belief is, doctor, he said, that he has eaten his birds, and that he just took and ate them raw. 11 p.m. I gave Renfield a strong opiate tonight, enough to make him, even him, sleep, and took away his pocketbook to look at it. about my brain lately is complete, and the theory proved. My homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. I shall have to invent a new classification for him, calling him a zoophagos, life-eating maniac, that he desires. What he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can, and he has laid himself out to achieve it in a cumulative way. He gave many flies to one spider, and many spiders to one bird, and then wanted a cat to eat the many birds. 
sneered at vivisection, and yet look at its results today. Why not advance science in its most difficult and vital aspect, the knowledge of the brain? Had I even the secret of one such mind, did I hold the key to the fancy of even one lunatic, I might advance my own branch of science to a pitch compared with which Burton Sanderson's physiology or Ferrier's brain knowledge would be as nothing. If only there were a sufficient cause, I must not think too much of this, or I may be tempted. A good cause might turn the scale with me, for may not I, too, be of an exceptional brain, congenitally. always do within their own scope. I wonder at how many lives he values a man, or if at only one. He has closed the account most accurately, and today begun a new record. How many of us begin a new record with each day of our lives? To me it seems only yesterday that my whole life ended with my new hope, and that truly I began a new record. So it will be until the great recorder sums me up and closes my ledger account with a balance to profit or loss. Oh, Lucy, Lucy, I cannot be angry with you, nor can I be angry with my friend, whose happiness is yours, but I must only wait on hopeless and work, work, work. If only, if I only could have as strong a cause as my poor mad friend there, good, unselfish cause to make me work. That would be indeed happiness. Mina Murray's Journal, 26th of July. I am anxious, and it soothes me to express myself here. It is like whispering to oneself and listening at the same time. There is also something about the shorthand symbols that makes it different from writing. I am unhappy about Lucy and about Jonathan. I had not heard from Jonathan for some time, and was very concerned. But yesterday, dear Mr. Hawkins, who is always so kind, sent me a letter from him. I had written, asking him if he had heard, and he said the enclosed had just been received. It is only a line dated from Castle Dracula, and says that he is just starting for home. That is not like Jonathan. I do not understand it. And it makes me uneasy. Then, too, Lucy, although she is so well, has lately taken to her old habit of walking in her sleep. Her mother has spoken to me about it, and we have decided that I am to lock the door of our room every night. Mrs. Wisterna, has got an idea that sleepwalkers always go out on roofs of houses and along the edges of cliffs, and then get suddenly wakened and fall over with a despairing cry that echoes all over the place. Poor dear, she is naturally anxious about Lucy, and she tells me that her husband, Lucy's father, had the same habit, that he would get up in the night and dress himself and go out, if he were not stopped. Lucy is to be married in the autumn, and she is already planning out how her dresses and how her house is to be arranged. 
empathize with her, for I do the same. Only Jonathan and I will start in life in a very simple way, and shall have to try to make both ends meet. Mr. Holmwood, he is the Honorable Arthur Holmwood, only son of Lord Goldalming, is coming up here very shortly, as soon as he can leave town, for his father is not very well, and I think dear Lucy is counting the moments till he comes. She wants to take him up to the seat of the churchyard cliff and show him the beauty of Whitby. I dare say it is the waiting which disturbs her. She will be all right when he arrives. 27th of July. No news from Jonathan. I am getting quite uneasy about him, though why I should I do not know, but I do wish that he would write, if it were only a single line. Lucy walks more than ever, and each night I am awakened by her moving about the room. Fortunately, the weather is so hot that she cannot get cold, but still the anxiety and the perpetually being wakened is beginning to tell on me, and I am getting nervous and wakeful myself. Thank God Lucy's health keeps up. Mr. Holmwood has been suddenly called to ring to see his father, who has been taken ill, seriously ill. Lucy frets at the postponement of seeing him, but it does not touch her looks. She is a trifle stouter, and her cheeks are lovely rose pink. She has lost that anemic look which she had. I pray it will all last. 3rd of August. Another week gone, and no news from Jonathan, not even to Mr. Hawkins, from whom I have heard. Oh, I do hope he is not ill. He surely would have written. I look at that last letter of his, but somehow it does not satisfy me. It does not read like him, and yet it is his writing. There is no mistake of that. Lucy has not walked much in her sleep the last week, but there is an odd concentration about her which I do not understand. Even in her sleep she seems to be watching me. She tries the door, and, finding it locked, goes about the room searching for the key. 6th of August Another three days, and no news. The suspense is getting dreadful. If I only knew where to write to or where to go, I should feel easier. But no one has heard a word of Jonathan since that last letter. I must only pray to God for patience. Lucy is more excitable than ever, but is otherwise well. Last night was very threatening, and the fishermen say that we are in for a storm. I must try to watch it and learn the weather signs. Today is a gray day, and the sun, as I write, is hidden in thick clouds, high over kettleness. Everything is gray, except the green grass, which seems like emerald amongst it. Gray earthy rock, gray clouds, tinged with the sunburst at the far edge, hang over the gray sea, into which the sand points stretch like gray fingers. The sea is tumbling in over the shallows and the sandy flats with a roar, muffled in the sea mists drifting inland. The horizon is lost in a gray 
dark figures are on the beach here and there, sometimes half-shrouded in the mist, and seem men like trees walking. The fishing boats are racing for home, and rise and dip in the ground, swell as they sweep into the harbor, bending to the scuppers. Here comes old Mr. Swales. He is making that he is making straight for me, and I can see by the way he lifts his hat that he wants to talk. I have been quite touched by the change in the poor old man. When he sat down beside me, he said in a very gentle way, I want to say something to you, miss. I could see he was not at ease, so I took his poor old wrinkled hand in mine and asked him to speak fully, so he said, leaving his hand in mine. I'm afraid, my dearie, that I must have shocked you by all the wicked things I have been saying about the dead and such like for weeks past, but I didn't mean them, and I want you to remember that when I'm gone, we owe folks that be daffled and with one foot above the goal don't altogether like to think of it, and we don't want to feel scarred of it, and that's why I took to making light of it, so that I'd cheer up my own heart a bit. But, Lord love you, miss, I ain't afraid of dying. Not a bit. Only, I don't want to die if I can help it. My time must be nigh at hand now, for I be owed, and a hundred years is too much for any man to expect. And I am so nigh that the old man is already wet in his scythe. You see, I can't get out of the habit of coughing about it all at once. The shafts will wag as they be used to. Some day soon the angel of death will sound his trumpet for me. But don't ye duel and greet, my dearie. For he saw that I was crying. If he should come this very night, I'd not refuse to answer his call, for life be, after all, only a waitin' for something else than what we're doing, and death be all that we can rightly depend on. But I'm content, for it's comin' to me, my dearie, and comin' quick. It may be comin' while we be lookin' and wonderin'. Maybe it's in that wind out and the sea that's bringin' with its loss and wreck, and sore distress, and sad hearts. Look, look, he cried suddenly. There's something in that wind and in that house beyond the sounds. The house beyond the sounds. It looks and tastes and smells like death. It's in the air. I feel it coming. Lord, make me answer cheerful when my call comes. He held up his arms devoutly and raised his hat. His mouth moved as though he were praying. After a few minutes' silence, he got up, shook hands with me, and blessed me, and said goodbye, and hobbled off. It all touched me, and upset me very much. I was glad when the Coast Guard came along, with his spyglass under his arm. He stopped to talk with me, as he always does, but all the time kept looking at a strange ship. I can't make her out, he said. She's a Russian by the look of her, but she's knocking about in the queerest way. She doesn't know her mind a bit. She seems to see the storm coming, but can't decide whether to run up north in the open or put in here. Look there again. She has steered mighty strangely, for she doesn't mind the hand on the wheel. Changes about with every puff of wind. We'll hear more.
yesterday for visits to Mulgrave Woods, Robin Hood's Bay, Rig Mill, Runswick, Staithes, and the various trips in the neighborhood of Whitby. The steamers, Emma and Scarborough, made trips up and down the coast, and there was an unusual amount of tripping both to and from Whitby. The day was unusually fine till the afternoon, when some of the gossips who frequent the East Cliff churchyard, and from that commanding eminence, watched the wide sweep of sea visible to the north and east, called attention to a sudden show of mare's tails, high in the sky to the northwest. The wind was then blowing from the southwest in the mild degree, which in barometrical language is ranked number two, light breeze. The Coast Guard on duty at once made report, and one old fisherman, who for more than half a century has kept watch on weather signs from the East Cliff, foretold in an emphatic manner the coming of sudden storm. The approach of sunset was so very beautiful, so grand in its masses of spent splendidly colored clouds, that there was quite an assemblage on the walk along the cliff churchyard to enjoy the beauty. Before the sun dipped below the black mass of Kettleness, standing boldly athwart the western sky, its downward way was marked by myriad clouds of every sunset color, flame, purple, pink, green, violet, and all tints of gold, with here and there masses not large, but of seemingly absolute blackness in all sorts of shapes, as well outlined as colossal silhouettes. The experience was not lost on the painters, and doubtless some of the sketches of the prelude to the great storm will grace the Royal Academy of Arts and the Royal Institute walls in May next. More than one captain made up his mind, then and there, that his cobble or his mule as they termed the different classes of boats, would remain in the harbor until the storm had passed. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and at midnight there was a dead calm, a sultry heat, and that prevailing intensity which, on the approach of thunder, affects persons of a sensitive nature. There were but few lights in sight at sea, for even the coasting steamers, which usually hug the shore so closely, kept well to seaward, and but few fishing boats were in sight. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner, with all sails set, which was seemingly going westwards. The foolhardiness or ignorance of her officers was a prolific theme for comment whilst she remained in sight, and efforts were made to signal her to reduce sail in face of her danger. Before the night shut down, she was seen with sails idly flapping as she gently rolled on the undulating swell of the sea. As idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Shortly before ten o'clock, the stillness of the air grew quite oppressive, and the silence was so marked that the bleating of a sheep inland or the barking of a dog 
apparently the same vessel which had been noticed earlier in the evening. The wind had by this time backed to the east, and there was a shudder amongst the watchers on the cliff as they realized the terrible danger in which she now was. Between her and the port lay a great flat reef on which so many good ships have from time to time suffered, and, with the wind blowing from its present quarter, it would be quite impossible that she should fetch the entrance of the harbor. It was now nearly the hour of high tide, but the waves were so great that in their troughs the shallows of the shore were almost visible, and the schooner, with all sails set, was rushing with such speed that in words of one old salt, she must fetch up somewhere if it, if it was only in hell. Then came another rush of sea fog, greater than any hitherto, a mass of dank mist, which seemed to close on all things like a gray pall, and left available to men only the organ of hearing, for the roar of the tempest, and the crash of thunder, and the booming of the mighty billows, came through the damp oblivion even louder than before. The rays of the searchlight were kept fixed on the harbor mouth across the east pier, where the shock was expected, and men waited breathless. The wind suddenly shifted to the northeast, and the remnant of the sea fog melted in the blast, and then, mirabil dictu, miraculous to say, between the piers, leaping from wave to wave as it rushed at headlong speed, swept the strange schooner before the blast, with all sail set, and gained the safety of the harbor. The searchlight followed her, and a shudder ran through all who saw her, for lashed to the helm was a corpse, with drooping head, which swung horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. No other form could be seen on deck at all. A great awe came on all as they realized that the ship, as if by a miracle, had found the harbor, unsteered, save by the hand of a dead man. However, all took place more quickly than it takes to write these words. The schooner paused not, but rushing across the harbor, pitched herself on that accumulation of sand and gravel, washed by many tides and many storms, into the southeast corner of the pier, jutting under the east cliff, known locally as Tate Hill Pier. There was, of course, a considerable concussion as the vessel drove up on the sand heap. Every spar, rope, and stay was strained, and some of the top hammer came crashing down. But, strangest of all, the very instant the shore was touched, an immense dog sprang up on deck from below, as if shot up by the concussion, and running forward, jumped from the bow on the sand, making straight for the steep cliff, where the churchyard hangs over the laneway to the east pier, so steeply, that some of the flat tombstones, thrustins, or throwstones, as they call them in the Whitby vernacular, actually project over where the sustaining cliff had fallen. 
that there was no one at the moment on Tate Hill Pier, as all those who house, whose houses are in close proximity were either in bed or were out on the heights above. Thus, the Coast Guard on duty on the eastern side of the harbor, who at once ran down to the little pier, was the first to climb on board. The men working the searchlight, after scouring the entrance of the harbor without seeing anything, then turned the light on the derelict and kept it there. The Coast Guard ran aft, and when he came beside the wheel, bent over to examine it, and recoiled at once as though under some sudden emotion. This seemed to pique general curiosity, and quite a number of people began to run. It is a good way round from the West Cliff by the drawbridge to Tate Hill Pier, but your correspondent is a fairly good runner, and came well ahead of the crowd. When I arrived, however, I found already assembled on the pier a crowd, whom the Coast Guard and police refused to allow to come on board. By the courtesy of the chief boatman, I was, as your correspondent, permitted to climb on deck, and was one of a small group who saw the dead seamen, whilst actually lashed to the wheel. It was no wonder that the Coast Guard was surprised, or even awed, for not often can such a sight have been seen. The man was simply fastened by his hands, tied one over the other to a spoke of the wheel. Between the inner hand and the wood was a crucifix, the set of beads on which it was fastened being around both wrists and the wheel, and all kept fast by the binding cords. The poor fellow may have been seated at one time, but the flapping and buffeting of the sails had worked through the rudder of the wheel and dragged him to and fro so that the cords with which he was tied had cut the flesh to the bone. Accurate note was made of the state of things, and a doctor, Surgeon J. M. Caffin of 33 East Elliot Place, who came immediately after me, declared after making examination that the man must have been dead for quite two days. In his pocket was a bottle, carefully corked, empty save for a little roll of paper, which proved to be the addendum to the log. The Coast Guard said, the man must have tied up his own hands, fastening the knots with his teeth. The fact that a Coast Guard was the first on board may save some complications later on in the, in the Admiralty Court, for Coast Guards cannot claim the salvage which is the right of the first civilian entering on a derelict. Already, however, the legal tongues are wagging, and one young law student is loudly asserting that the rights of the owner are already completely sacrificed, his property being held in contravention of the statutes of Mort Maine, since the tiller as emblem ship is not, if not proof, a delegated possession is held in a dead hand. It is needless to say that the dead steersman has been reverently removed from the place where he held his honorable watch and ward till death, a steadfastness as noble as, of, as that of the young Casabianca, 
mortuary to await inquest. Already the sudden storm is passing, and its fierceness is abating. The crowds are scattering homeward, and the sky is beginning to redden over the Yorkshire wolds. I shall send, in time for your next issue, further details of the derelict ship which found her way so miraculously into harbor in the storm. Whitby, 9th of August. The sequel to the strange arrival of the derelict in the storm last night is almost more startling than the thing itself. It turns out that the schooner is a Russian from Varna and is called the Demeter. She is almost entirely in ballast of silver sand with only a small amount of cargo a number of great wooden boxes filled with mold. This cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S.F. Billington, of Seven, the Crescent, who this morning went aboard and formally took possession of the goods consigned to him. The Russian consul, too, acting for the charter party, took formal possession of the ship and paid all harbor dues, etc., Nothing is talked about here today except the strange coincidence. The officials of the Board of Trade have been most exacting in seeing that every compliance has been made with existing regulations. As the matter is to be a nine days wonder, they are evidently determined that there shall be no cause of there shall be no cause of after complaint. A good deal of interest was aboard abroad concerning the dog, which landed when the ship struck, and more than a few of the members of the SPCA, which is very strong in Whitby, have tried to befriend the animal. To the general disappointment, however, it was not to be found. It seems to have disappeared entirely from the town. It may be that it was frightened and made its way on to the moors, where it is still hiding in terror. There are some who look with dread on such a possibility. Lest later on it should in itself become a danger, for it is evidently a fierce brute. Early this morning, a large dog, a half-bred mastiff belonging to a coal merchant close to Tate Hill Pier, was found dead in the roadway opposite its master's yard. It had been fighting, and manifestly, had had a savage opponent, for its throat was torn away, and its belly was slit open, as if with a savage claw. Later, by the kindness of the Board of Trade Inspector, I have been permitted to look over the logbook of the Demeter, which was in order up to within three days, but contained nothing of special interest except as to facts of missing men, the greater interest, however, is with regard to the paper found in the bottle, which was today produced at the inquest, and a more strange narrative than the two between them unfold, than the two between them unfolded, has not been my lot to come across. As there is no motive for concealment, I am permitted to use them, and accordingly send you a rescript simply omitting technical details of seamanship and supercargo. It almost seems as though 
been seized with some kind of mania before he had got well into blue water, and that this had developed persistently throughout the voyage. Of course, my statement must be taken cum grano with a grain of salt, since I am writing from the dictation of a clerk of the Russian consul who kindly translated for me, time being short. Log of the Demeter, Varna to Whitby, written 18th of July. Things so strange happening that I shall keep accurate note henceforth till we land. Log of the Demeter, Varna to Whitby, written 18th of July. Things so strange happening that I shall keep accurate note henceforth until we land. On 6th of July, we finished taking in cargo, silver sand, and boxes of earth. At noon, set sail, east wind, fresh, crew, five hands, two mates, cook, and myself the captain. On July 11th, at dawn, entered Bosphorus, boarded by Turkish customs officers, Bakshish, all correct, underway at 4 p.m. On the 12th of July, through Dardanelles, more custom officers, more customs officers and flagboat of guarding squadron, Bakshish again, work of officers thorough but quick, want us off soon, at dark, passed into Archipelago. On 13th of July, past Cape Mataban, crew dissatisfied about something, seemed scared, but would not speak out. On 14th of July, was somewhat anxious about the crew, men all steady fellows who sailed with me before. Mate could not make out what was wrong. They only told him there was something crossed themselves. Mate lost temper with one of them that day and struck him. Expected fierce quarrel, but all was quiet. On 16th of July, Mate reported in the morning that one of the crew, Petrovsky, was missing. Could not account for it. Took large board, larboard. Watch eight bells last night was relieved by Abramov, but did not go to bunk. Men more downcast than ever, all said they expected something of the kind, but would not say more than that there was something aboard. Mate getting very impatient with them, feared some trouble ahead. On 17th of July, yesterday, one of the men, Olgaren, came to my cabin, and in an awestruck way confided to me that he thought there was a strange man aboard the ship. He said that in his watch he had be been sheltering behind the deck house, as there was a rainstorm when he saw a tall, thin man, who was not like any of the crew, come up the companionway and go along the deck and forward and disappear. He followed cautiously, but when he got to bows, found no one, and the hatchways were all closed. He was in a panic of superstitious fear, and I am afraid the panic may spread. To allay it, 
search entire ship carefully from stem to stern. Later in the day, I got together the whole crew and told them, as they evidently thought there was someone in the ship, we would search from stem to stern. First mate, angry, said it was folly, and to yield to such foolish ideas would demoralize the men. Said he would engage to keep them out of trouble with a hand spike. I let him take the helm while the rest began thorough search, all keeping abreast. With lanterns, we left no corner unsearched, as there were only the big wooden boxes. There were no odd corners where a man could hide. Men much relieved when search was over and went back to work cheerfully. First mate scowled, but said nothing. 22nd of July. Rough weather last three days, and all hands busy with sails. No time to be frightened. Men seem to have forgotten their dread. Mate cheerful again, and all on good terms. Praised men for work in bad weather. Past Gibraltar and out through straits. All well. 24th of July. There seems some doom over this ship. Already a hand short, and entering on the Bay of Biscay with wild weather ahead. And yet, last night another man lost, disappeared. Like the first, he came off his watch and was not seen again. Men all in a panic of fear, sent around Robin, asking to have a double watch, as they feared to be alone. Mate violent. For fear, there will be some trouble, as either he or the men will do some violence. 28th of July, four days in hell, knocking about in a sort of maelstrom, and the wind a tempest. No sleep for anyone. Men all worn out. Hardly know how to set a watch, since no one fit to go on. Second mate volunteered to steer and watch and let men snatch a few hours sleep. Wind abating. Seas still terrific, but feel them less, as ship is steadier. 29th of July. Another tragedy. Had single watch tonight, as crew too tired to double. When morning watch came on deck, could find no one except steersmen. Raised outcry, and all came on deck. Thorough search, but no one found. Are now without second mate and crew in a panic. Mate and I agreed to go armed henceforth and wait for any sign of cause. 30th of July. Last night, rejoiced, we are nearing England. Weather fine, all sails set, retired worn out, and slept soundly, awaked by mate telling me that both man of watch and steersman missing, only self and mate and two hands left to work ship. 1st of August, two days of fog and not a sail sighted hoped when in the English Channel to be able to signal for help to get in 
Jess could not raise them again. We seemed to be drifting to some terrible doom. Mate now, more demoralized than either of men. His stronger nature seems to have worked inwardly against himself. Men are beyond fear, working stolidly and patiently, with minds made up to worst. They are Russian, he Romanian. 2nd of August, midnight. Woke up from few minutes sleep by hearing a cry, seemingly outside my port. Could see nothing in fog. Rushed on deck and ran against mate. Tells me heard cry and ran, but no sign of man on watch. One more gone. Lord help us. Mate says we must be past Straits of Dover, as in a moment of fog lifting he saw North Foreland, just as he heard the man cry out. If so, we are now off in the North Sea, and only God can guide us in the fog, which seems to move with us, and God seems to have deserted us. 3rd of August. At midnight, I went to relieve the man at the wheel, but when I got to it, found no one there. The wind was steady, and as we ran before it, there was no yawing. I dared not leave it, so shouted for the mate. After a few seconds, he rushed up on deck in his flannels. He looked wild-eyed and haggard, and I greatly fear his reason has given way. He came close to me and whispered hoarsely with his mouth to my ear, as though fearing the very air might hear. It is here. I know it now. On the watch last night I saw it, like a man, tall and thin, and ghastly, pale. It was in the bows, and looking out, I crept behind it and gave it my knife, but the knife went through it empty as the air, and as he spoke he took his knife and drove it savagely into space. Then he went on. But it is here, and I'll find it. It is in the hold, perhaps, in one of those boxes. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. You work the helm. And with a warning look, and his finger on his lip, he went below. There was springing up a choppy wind, and I could not leave the helm. I saw him come out on deck again with a tool chest and a lantern and go down the forward hatchway. He is mad, stark, raving mad, and it's no use my trying to stop him. He can't hurt those big boxes. They are invoiced as clay, and to pull them out is as harmless a thing as he can do, so here I stay and mind the helm, and write these notes. I can only trust in God and wait till the fog clears. Then, if I can't steer to any harbor with the wind that is, I shall cut down sails and lie by and signal for help. It is nearly all over now, just as I was beginning to hope that the mate would come out calmer, for I heard him knocking away at something in the hold, and work is good for him. There came up the hatchway a sudden, startled scream, which made my blood run cold, and up on the deck he came 
as if shot from a gun, a raging madman, with his eyes rolling and his face convulsed with fear. Save me, save me, he cried, and then looked round on the blanket of fog. His horror turned to despair, and in a steady voice he said, You had better come to, Captain, before it is too late. He is there. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him, and it is all that I, and it is all that is left. Before I could say a word or move forward to seize him, he sprang on the bulwark and deliberately threw himself into the sea. I suppose I know the secret too now. It was this madman who had got rid of the men one by one, and now he has followed them himself. God help me, how am I to account for all these horrors when I get to port? When I get to port, will that ever be? Fourth of August Still fog, which the sunrise cannot pierce. I know there is sunrise because I am a sailor. Why else I know not? I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed, and in the dimness of the night I saw it, him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It is better to die like a man to die like a sailor in blue water, no man can object. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. But I shall baffle this fiend or mon monster, for I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail, and along with them I shall tie that which he, it, dare not touch. And then, come good wind or foul, I shall save my soul and my honor as a captain. I am growing weaker, and the night is coming on. If he can look me in the face again, I may not have time to act. If we are wrecked, mayhap this bottle may be found, and those who find it may understand. If not, well, then all men shall know that I have been true to my trust. God and the Blessed Virgin and the saints help a poor ignorant soul trying to do his duty. Of course the verdict was an open one. There is no evidence to adduce, and whether or not the man himself committed the murders there is now none to say. The folk hold almost universally here that the captain is simply a hero, and he is to be given a public funeral. arranged that his body is to be taken with a train of boats up the Esk for a piece, and then brought back to Tate Hill Pier and up the Abbey Steps, for he is to be buried in the churchyard on the cliff. The owners of more than a hundred boats have already given their names as wishing to follow him to the grave. No trace has ever been found of the great dog, at which there is much mourning, present state, he would, I believe, be adopted by the town. Tomorrow we'll see the funeral, and so we'll end this one more mystery of the sea. Mina Murray's Journal, 8th of August. Lucy was very restless all night, and I, 
strange thing, this sleepwalking, for as soon as her will is thwarted in any physical way, her intention, if there be any, disappears, and she yields herself almost exactly to the routine of her life. Early in the morning we both got up and went down to the harbor to see if anything had happened in the night. There were very few people about, and though the sun was bright and the air clear and fresh, the big, grim-looking waves that seemed dark themselves, because the foam that topped them was like snow, forced themselves in through the narrow mouth of the harbor, like a bullying man going through a crowd. Somehow I felt glad that Jonathan was not on the sea last night, but on land. But, oh, is he on land or sea? is he, and how? I am getting fearfully anxious about him, if I only knew what to do and could do anything. 10th of August. The funeral of the poor sea captain today was most touching. Every boat in the harbor seemed to be there, and the coffin was carried by captains all the way from Hill Pier up to the churchyard. Lucy came with me, and we went early to our old seat, whilst the cortege of boats went up the river to the viaduct and came down again. We had a lovely view and saw the procession nearly all the way. The poor fellow was laid to rest quite near our seat, so that we stood on it when the time came and saw everything. Poor Lucy seemed much upset. She was restless and uneasy all the time. the seat is fixed. The moment it touched the stone, the poor thing began 
such an adventure, such an agonizing experience. I fell asleep as soon as I had closed my diary. Suddenly, I became broad awake and sat up with a horrible sense of fear upon me and of some feeling of emptiness around me. The room was dark, so I could not see Lucy's bed. I stole across and felt for her. The bed was empty. I lit a match and found that she was not in the room. The door was shut but not locked as I had left it. I feared to wake her mother, who has been more than usually ill lately, so threw on some clothes and got ready to look for her. As I was leaving the room, it struck me that the clothes she wore might give me some clue to her dreaming intention. Dressing gown would mean house, dress outside. Dressing gown and dress were both in their places. Thank God, I said to myself, she cannot be far, as she is only in her night dress. I ran downstairs and looked in the sitting room. Not there. Then I looked in all the other open rooms of the house, with an ever-growing fear chilling my heart. Finally, I came to the hall door and found it open. It was not wide open, but the catch of the lock had not caught. The people of the house are careful to lock the door every night, so I feared that Lucy must have gone out as she was. There was no time to think of what might happen. A vague, overmastering fear obscured all details. I took a big, heavy shawl and ran out. The clock was striking one as I was in the crescent, and there was not a soul in sight. I ran along the north terrace, but could see no sign of the white figure which I expected. At the edge of the west cliff, the harbor to the east cliff, in the hope or fear, I don't know which, of seeing Lucy in our favorite seat. There was a bright full moon with heavy black driving clouds, which threw the whole scene into a fleeting diorama of light and shade as they sailed across. For a moment or two, I could see nothing as the shadow of a cloud obscured St. Mary's Church all as the cloud passed, I could see the ruins of the abbey coming into view, and as the edge of a narrow band of light as sharp as a sword cut moved along, the church and the churchyard became gradually visible. Whatever my expectation was, it was not disappointed, for there, on our favorite seat, the silver light of the moon struck a half-reclining figure, snowy white. The coming of the cloud was too quick for me to see much, for a shadow shut down on light almost immediately. But it seemed to me as though something dark stood behind the seat where the white figure shone and bent over it. What it was, whether man or beast, I could not tell. I did not wait to catch another glance, but flew down the steep steps to the pier and along by the fish market. 
Passing along. 
beside me and told me all about Arthur. I told her how anxious I was about Jonathan, and then she tried to comfort me. Well, she succeeded somewhat, for, though sympathy can't alter facts, it can help to make them more bearable. 13th of August, another quiet day, and to bed with the key on my wrist as before. Again I awoke in the night and found Lucy sitting up in bed, still asleep, pointing to the window. I got up quietly and pulling aside the blind, looked out. It was brilliant moonlight and the soft effect of the light over the sea and sky merged together in one great silent mystery was beautiful beyond words. Between me and the moonlight flitted a great bat coming and going in great whirling circles. Once or twice it came quite close, but was, I suppose, frightened at seeing me and flitted away across the harbor towards the abbey. When I came back from the window, Lucy had lain down again and was sleeping peacefully. She did not stir again all night. 14th of August On the east cliff, reading and writing all day, Lucy seems to have become as much in love with the spot as I am, and it is hard to get her away from it when it is time to come home for lunch or tea or dinner. This afternoon, she made a funny remark. We were coming home for dinner, and had come to the top of the steps up from the west pier, and stopped to look at the view as we generally do. The setting sun, low down in the sky, was just dropping behind Kettleness. The red light was thrown over on the east cliff and the old abbey, and seemed to bathe everything in a beautiful rosy glow. We were silent for a while, and suddenly Lucy murmured as if to herself, His red eyes again, they are just the same. It was such an odd expression coming, apropos of nothing, that it quite startled me. I slewed around a little so as to see Lucy well without seeming to stare at her, and saw that she was in a half-dreamy state, with an odd look on her face that I could not quite make out, so I said nothing but followed her eyes. She appeared to be looking over at her own seat, whereon was a dark figure seated alone. I was a little startled myself, for it seemed for an instant as if the stranger had great eyes like burning flames, but a second look dispelled the illusion. The red sunlight was shining on the windows of St. Mary's Church behind our seat, and as the sun dipped there, it was just sufficient change in the refraction and reflection to make it appear, as if the light moved. I called Lucy's attention to the peculiar effect, and she became herself with a start, but she looked sad all the same. She was thinking of that terrible night up there. We never referred to it, so I said nothing, and we went home to dinner. Lucy had a headache and went early to bed. I saw her asleep and went out for a little stroll myself. I walked along the cliffs to the westward and was full of sweet sadness, for I was thinking of Jonathan. When coming home, it was then bright moonlight so bright that, though the front of our part of the crescent was in shadow, everything could be well seen. I threw a glance 
types of goods sent by Great Northern Railway. Same are to be delivered at Carfax near Burfleet, immediately on receipt at Goods Station King's Cross. The house is at present empty, but enclosed, please find keys, all of which are labeled. You will please deposit the boxes, fifty in number, which form the consignment in the partially ruined building forming part of the house and marked A on rough diagram enclosed. Your agent will easily recognize the locality as it is the ancient chapel of the mansion. The goods leave by train at 9.30 tonight and will be due at King's Cross at 4.30 tomorrow afternoon. As our client wishes the delivery made as soon as possible, we shall be obliged by your having teams ready at King's Cross at the time named and forthwith conveying the goods to destination. In order to obviate any delays possible through any routine requirements as to payment in your departments, we enclose check herewith for ten pounds, receipt of which please acknowledge. Should the charge be less than this amount, you can return balance. If greater, we shall at once send check for difference on hearing from you. You are to leave the keys on coming away in the main hall of the house, where the proprietor, the proprietor may get them on his entering the house by means of his duplicate key. Pray do not take us as exceeding the bounds of business courtesy and pressing you in all ways to use the utmost expedition. We are, dear sirs, faithfully yours. Signed, Samuel F. Billington and Son. Messrs. Carter, Patterson and Company, London, to Messrs. Billington and Son, Whitby, 21st of August. Dear Sirs, we beg to acknowledge ten pounds received, and to return the check amount of overplus as shown in receipted account herewith. Goods are delivered in exact accordance with instructions, and keys left in parcel in main hall, as directed. Sirs, yours respectfully, Carter Patterson and Company. Mina Murray's Journal, 18th of August. I am happy today, and right sitting on the on the seat in the churchyard. Lucy is ever so much better. Last night she slept well all night and did not disturb me once. The roses seem coming back already to her cheeks though she is still sadly pale and wan-looking. If she were in any way anemic, I could understand it, but she is not. She is in gay spirits and full of life and cheerfulness. All the morbid reticence seems to have passed from her, and she has just reminded me, as if I needed any reminding, of that night, and that it was here, on this very seat, I found her asleep. As she told me, she tapped playfully with the heel of her boot on the stone slab and said, My poor little feet didn't make much noise then. I dare say poor old Mr. Swales would have told me that if it was because I didn't want to wake up Geordie. As she was in such a communicative humor, I asked her if she had dreamt at all that night. Before she answered, that sweet buggered look came into her forehead. Which Arthur, I call him Arthur from her habit, 
something very sweet and very bitter all around me at once, and then I seemed sinking into deep green water, and there was a singing in my ears, as I have heard there is to drowning men, and then everything seemed passing away from me. My soul seemed to go out from my body and float about the air. I seemed to remember that once the West Lighthouse was right under me, a sort of agonizing feeling as if I were in an earthquake and I came back and found you shaking my body. I saw you do it before I felt you. Then she began to laugh. It seemed a little uncanny to me and I listened to her breathlessly. I did not quite like it and thought it better not to keep her mind on the subject. So we drifted on to other subjects. And Lucy was like her old self again. Fresh breeze had braced her up, and her pale cheeks were really more rosy. Her mother rejoiced when she saw her, and we all spent a very happy evening together. 19th of August. Joy, joy, joy. Although not all joy. At last, news of Jonathan. My dear fellow has been ill, that is why he did not write. I am not afraid to think it or to say it, now that I know. Mr. Hawkins sent me on the letter and wrote himself, oh, so kindly. I am to leave in the morning and go over to Jonathan and to help to nurse him if necessary and to bring him home. Mr. Hawkins says it would not be a bad thing if we were to be married out there. I have cried over the good sister's letter till I can feel it wet against my bosom where it lies. It is of Jonathan and must be next my heart, for he is in my heart. My journey is all mapped out, and my luggage ready. I am only taking one change of dress. Lucy will bring my trunk to London, and keep it till I send for it, for it may be that I must write no more. I must keep it to say to Jonathan, my husband, the letter that he has seen and touched must comfort me till we meet. Letter, Sister Agatha. Hospital of St. Joseph and St. Mary, Budapest, to Miss Philomena Murray, 12th of August. Dear Madam, I write by desire of Mr. Jonathan Harker, who is himself not strong enough to write, though progressing well, thanks to God and St. Joseph and St. Mary. He has been under her care for nearly six weeks, suffering from a violent brain fever. He wishes me to convey his love and to say that by this post I write for him to Mr. Peter Hawkins, Exeter, to say, with his dutiful respects, that he is sorry for his delay and that all his work is completed. He will require some few weeks' rest in our sanatorium in the hills, but will then return. He wishes me to say that he has not sufficient money with him staying here, so that others who need shall not be wanting for help. Believe me, yours with sympathy and all blessings, Sister Agatha. P.S. My patient being asleep, I open this to let you know something more. He has told me all about you, and that you are shortly to be his wife. All blessings to you both. He has had some fearful shock, so says our doctor. And in his delirium, 
You've been listening to The Book Whisperer. Listen in tomorrow night for chapters 9 through 12. Good night.